the most action-packed content from the top mobile experts. This is the App Masters Podcast with Steve P. Young. Want to know what your competitors are up to? Serving as an essential ad and marketing intelligence platform, Social Peta covers advertising data from over 80 global ad networks across 70 countries and regions. And they have more than 300 enterprise clients. You might have heard of a few, including Google, Tencent Games, NetEase Games, and so much more. Learn more by visiting socialpeta.com. That's socialpeta.com. Do you want to create your very own app, but you don't have any programming skills? Well, check out Bravo Studio the fastest mobile app building platform. Bravo converts your designs into fully native iOS and Android apps without any coding. Learn more at bravostudio.app. That, once again, is bravostudio.app. What is up, App Nation? It is Steve P. Young, founder of appmasters.com. The place you go when you want action-packed content related to helping you grab your app downloads and your revenues. And today we've got a seasoned entrepreneur executive with over 15 years of PL experience spanning sales, consulting, software development, project management, implementation, leadership, and coaching. And we're going to talk all about when is the right time to scale? What are the metrics that enable you to be like, okay, this is the right time to scale? Maybe you found product market fit. All these metrics we're going to talk about in detail with her. But without further ado, her name is Sarah Gifford. She is the COO of ActiveVote. And I put a link into the chat so you can check out ActiveVote right there by clicking that link or go to ActiveVote.net. Sarah, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm happy to talk to you today. I'm happy to have you on as well. Fernando's here. I wanted to make sure this stream because I wanted to say, if you guys are here, put in the chat. I was like, what is going on with these numbers? But Sarah, let's kick it off right now off the bat. Like, I guess, where do you want to start? Because I, I don't want to jump right in, but how do you know when is it the right time to particularly scale? So it'll always feel like it's never the right time. It'll always feel <laughs> okay, like good things to do before you'll be ready. If I do this, then I'm ready. If I do that, then I'm ready. Um, there will always be something else, right? So there's an old saying about software development. If you think about it that way, if you're super proud of your first release, you waited too long. Right. And the idea was you got to put it out there. You got to get some feedback. You got to see what people think. Um, so be a little embarrassed and that's okay. And so you want to be on that just flirting with that line of uncomfortable. Uh, and I think okay. the same thing goes for scaling. Um, you know, too early, Certainly not good, but waiting till everything is perfect, nothing will ever be perfect. Everything won't be perfect ever. And then when I when I think of scale, I think of just like how do we grow top line revenues? How do we do that? What how do you define scaling? So the same thing, right? It's okay, good. And, and that scale it can be revenue. Um, you know, some people use there's you know there's leading indicators and trailing indicators, right? So depending on the business you have. Um, you know, it can be a user count as a, as a, as a leading in indicator for revenue, right? You get the users first and then you get the revenue later, or it could be leads. You get the leads first, right? Those eventually turn into sales. And so I think my biggest thing is to make sure that you don't only pick the trailing indicators because then you're going uh -huh. a little bit too slow. So you want to pick a KPI that is 
telling you that it's coming as opposed to that it's already here. So revenue can certainly be that indicator and that really much really depends just on your business model uh, and how that all flows through. Okay, and people, I guess the time change has messed up some people. Rudy's here, Romain's here, and we got Adrian. Sorry, Adrian, we have this daylight savings thing in the US that has caused some problems. I'm having a hard time waking up this morning. All right, Sarah, so one of the things that I tend to look at too, and one of the stories that I'll share with you is in 2018, I really tried to scale. I was like, things are going well, we're getting really big clients and we're signing into these big deals. And I was like hiring more, but it, the, the, the sales, the revenues couldn't keep up. And so I ended up being like negative cash flow for the month and I had to take out a loan through PayPal. And I was like, oh shoot, you know, I was like, what is happening? I totally messed up and I didn't. And for me now for the longest time, I've got, Good cash flow now. Everything's good, but I've been so reluctant because I've been so afraid of going back there that I'm like, these these numbers look good, Steve. Like, I think it's time to hire a little bit more. But I've been trying to be methodical about it. Am I going too slow? How do you know what's the right pace to go at, too? So it also depends on the flexibility you have. So okay. you know, it sounds like when this happened, you had the ability to get the loan that you needed to keep going. Um, and maybe you should have just kept going, right? Depending on that situation. For others, you need to be more conservative with it. If you're a bootstrapped business without a, you know, a lot of extra cash, well, then you want to make sure that the cash is in the bank before you start doing these things. Now, one thing, because because personnel, and I think you touched on it too, Steve, right? That you hired people. That's going to be your most expensive cost. It's a most, you know, it's, it's a cost that's hard to, it's not as fungible um, as people might like. But then one way to scale is to start trying to be creative about things. You know, maybe you use, you know, freelancers for a while. So the rate might be higher, uh, the rate per hour, the rate per day, you know, however you're paying those freelancers, but it gives you the flexibility of kind of following the business. You know, that's one kind of trick you can sometimes use to kind of dip your toe in the water to scale and, and enjoy the ride that you're on without maybe getting into cash problems. Um, the other thing you can do is, uh, you know, one of the things I used to do is, I used to sell ahead of hiring um, and that has pros and cons. So the pros, uh, I always had money because I'd already sold the deals. The cons, it meant the, the team that I had was pretty slammed for a while until I could hire more people um, and train more people. Um, now, what I did is I just got bought in. For, I, I got buy in from the whole team about this. Right. One of my philosophies when running my business was to make sure I will never hire someone that I don't believe I can keep employed for life. Does that mean that you don't? Sometimes make changes. No, sometimes you make changes. But I didn't want to be that company that hired and laid off, hired and laid off, because I don't think that's good to your employees. And it wasn't kind of the business leader that I wanted to be. Um, so I just got buy-in from the team. Everybody I hire, you're here for life. That, that included the Great Recession. Um, it's included you know, the whole COVID period. Um, it's just a, kind of an adage that I live by. But then the, the whole team knew that there were going to sometimes be two or three pretty rough weeks um, when these situations happened. Um, but bringing the team into that discussion makes them happy to be part of the solution. Um, and one of the kind of side effects that I didn't realize when I deployed this approach, if you will, um, was that actually from a training perspective, you know, you hire someone and it was kind of drinking from the fire hose, but the best way to learn is to have actual real work to do and not just reading training materials or doing, you know, e-learnings. Um, and so it ended up being, you know, on the, on the flip side of all things, a great way to train at the same time. Love that. 
I have that same model, like hire for life, right? Like I want to, and I've been thinking about this too, love your feedback on this. I was like, all right, I want somebody that can sort of replace some of the knowledge that I have from a marketing perspective so that I could focus in on content creation, sales and all that stuff. And then instead of finding somebody external, I was like, you know what? I've got a couple of people that work for me. Maybe I can just hire from internally. Maybe that's the right approach. Is that the right approach or is it better to sometimes bring somebody else in? How do you kind of balance those two out? So I am a huge proponent of promoting from within and transferring from within. Um, in part, it's how I got some of the big leaps in my career was somebody having faith in me when I had no experience at the job that I was going to go to. Um, but knowing I was good at the job that I have now, if someone is good at the job you have now, you know so much about that person. You know about their work ethic, you know about their approach, you know about their diligence, you know about their communication. Um, and if they are passionate for this new role, they are going to put more into it than someone you get from the outside. So the positives of promoting from within is if you're seen as an employer that gives your people opportunities, people are going to want to work for you. Um, and that's going to help you get better talent. Um, the downside can be, if you really need to fill a gap and that's a step too far for people, um, well, then you haven't you know, filled that gap. Um, but I, my personal approach, and this is a very personal choice, right? That I obviously didn't do this for everything. I didn't, you know, I didn't promote from within when I needed a CFO. No, I went and got a seasoned CFO uh, to make sure I didn't make any mistakes. Um, but for a lot of the roles, if you can provide these opportunities, um, it's really gonna help you in the long run. Um, and so, Again, it sounds like Steve, you know, you've got some great people. I've gotten a chance to work with some of your team and they are incredible um, for anyone on here who hasn't gotten a chance to work with them. Um, promote them, give them a chance. Uh, and you yeah. can be really open about it. Like, hey, we're gonna try this for two weeks, four weeks, six months. If it doesn't work, then you hire out. Yeah, I, I've, <laughs> good, I'm on the right track. I have given that same sentiment, like, hey, we're gonna try it and if it doesn't work out, and you know, some of the people that have been with me for a long time, we tried it. And she's like, I don't like this role, Steve. Like, and I'm like, okay, and it's not good for you. I love working with you. And so let's put you in something that you thrive in as well. Now, Sarah, before we hit record, you're like, look, this is what I do best. I've taken a lot of divisions. I've taken a lot of products from zero to not from like zero to something and really grown it. When you think about scale, are you thinking about let's invest more in marketing or let's invest more in people? How do you figure that out? So I think one of the biggest things is you need to make sure you're analyzing in detail where the bottleneck is in your business, because it's not in the same place in all businesses. Um, and I think, you know, one, one pitfall some of the people that reported to me had is like, okay, well, I read this book and it said I should do X. And I was like, X is an amazing idea, but you don't have a problem with X, right? Um, and so you know, it's, it's sometimes hard to do the introspection, but you need to kind of look at your business and figure out where your challenge is. So um, am I, you know, and you can start at the top, right? Do I have enough customers? Okay, no. Am I getting enough deals through the pipeline? Where are those deals stalling in the pipeline? Um, if once a deal gets in the pipeline, you close, you know, a great percentage of them, then, okay, I need more deals in my pipeline. And you kind of move back that way. And then, you know, at some point you'll find, hey, I don't have deals in my pipeline because I don't have, you know, X role doing something or Y content to help me out with that. And so I think, you know, scale is one of those things where people want the silver bullet and it's like, hey, sell more that scales. Right. That, and that might be your problem and you might need to really invest in sales, but it might be a marketing problem, might be a team problem. Um, you know, it could be almost anything. Uh, you know, I've had I've had uh, groups that I, that I was responsible for. And when I got there, um, they had a market problem. Um, you know, I was mm -hmm. I was working with a division in Australia for a while. 
And you know, they were trying to reproduce some of the learnings that worked in Europe. Well, Australia is a very different place than Europe. Um, and after sitting down and looking at it, it's like, oh, Australian market, you should tackle mining. Um, for those of you that live or know in Australia, a lot of mining that happens there. Um, and so once we changed the just general vertical that they were chasing, all of their infrastructure worked. It was that one small thing. And so I think kind of the moral of that story is um, it's probably not an answer that's that's feels useful to people, but it's to really think and look about what your problem might be. And then the second is find someone that you can tell about your business that will ask some questions. They'll make you think when they ask those questions. You can take their advice. You cannot take their advice. Um, but find someone who's not inside the business that will ask those questions because you're very close to it and you know you might have a blind spot. Like it. I don't think I did a good enough job talking about ActiveVote. I really like what you've built here. So ActiveVote.net, the app allows you to really, this is my favorite feature, Sarah, and I told you this because we got to work together, but you can put your beliefs where you can fill out a survey, a poll, and put your beliefs in there, and then it'll find the right candidate that matches your belief. Because generally what I did, and I told Sarah this, I just go, okay, Democrat, Democrat. But then when there's like two or three, and I'm like, what, who am I supposed to pick? And that's what ActiveVote comes into. Maybe, you know, it'll be a Republican that aligns more with my beliefs. And that's fine, too. But I think that's what the, the app does, too. So I'm going to let you Did I do a good enough job, Sarah. Do you want to talk about it a little bit more? No, absolutely. Hey, we always love hearing user stories of what people like. Um, you know, for everyone listening who lives in the U.S., uh, 2022 is a big election year, the midterm elections. Yeah. Um, the primary season has already started. Texas voted March 1st. We've got 17 states coming up in May. Um, and voting is incredibly important. These, you know, who we elect, they make decisions that impact our lives. Um, we read about in the news, we get angry about it, we get happy about it, whatever the case may be. Um, right. And this whole idea of active vote is your personal democracy experience, everything you need to be active, um, but in a fun way, an easy way, in a way that keeps everybody engaged. And you know, just like Steve said, you know, we try to make it a little easier to sort through the noise of all these candidates. Um, I don't think there's anyone that says they love listening to campaign speeches. And so we try to take that out of it and make it feel, you know, just there for you. And so for, you know, any voter in the U.S. Um, who's listening, I really hope you'll give it a try uh, and let us know what you think. I love it. Okay. The next thing I want to move on to, and I know some of the people that are in the comments right now. And so I wanted to just kind of talk about them. Let's say you have an app, it's growing, you're starting to make some revenues. Now I'll lead it off a little bit. Maybe I'm not trying to lead you towards anything, but I really look at the numbers, right? And I'm kind of like, all right, how many downloads are you getting? How many trial activations are you getting? How many of those who are activating a trial are turning into a subscription? And then what is the overall back of the napkin, new revenue per month, right? Per download, revenue per download. And I'm like, hey, here, Let's first say example, Adrian, here's how much you're making revenues dollars per download. So in terms of, I know it's not LTV, but here's how much you can spend per download. So if you want to try Apple search ads, for example, you can pay up to a dollar 50 and still break even. And if you don't need, and now the way I think about it is, do you need revenues right now? Right? Are you living off of this? If this is not, then you're like, okay, let's just try to break even. Let's try to grow because then. You know, the math should work out that these people are going to stay longer than the math that I just did for the revenue per download. Am I making sense here? I know. Yeah, a visual help. Okay. Good. <laughs> and it all starts with the numbers and it ends with the numbers. I think, um, you know, if you're building an app somewhere in this organization is somebody techie that, that that's building it. Uh, it's, it's really easy to have a feeling and a hope and a dream. Um, and I love hopes and dreams and I have lots of them, but hopes and dreams don't pay the bills. The numbers do. 
Um, so I think Steve is absolutely right. Um, make sure you're in you're in in the numbers um, and you really know what they mean and 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 how to use them to make decisions. Um, one bad number doesn't have to change a strategy. Um, you can have a long-term strategy uh, and you know still look at the short-term metrics, um, but they are telling you something. Um, they're always telling you something, even if it's not what you want to hear. Yeah. Okay. I like it. Samuel says, I don't have any revenues yet. So definitely think about revenues. And Sarah, you know, you've built million, you tell me how big, you, but I, I assume like multi-million dollar companies, maybe even a hundred million dollar type of companies. But it's like, I always think like, it's that first dollar, it's that first 100, it's that first 1000, it's that first 10,000, then it's the first, you know, 50, maybe a hundred, you know, they're different milestones. And so if you're starting from zero, like what's the next step, right? Like, and then I feel like, and I, maybe I'm just like pessimistic in this way. It's like when I come, when I hear people like, I'm like, how many, how much, you know, are you revenue? Like Samuel, for example, and I'm not picking on you, Samuel, but I have no revenues, but you know, how do I get to 20,000 fast? I'm like, dude, you don't even know how to get to 100 fast. Like, how do you going to get to 20,000? Is that the right approach or how do you try to approach it when people come to you and be like, I got zero revenues right now. How do I get to a hundred thousand a month really fast? So one of the things I have always done, and I've done this throughout my entire career, is I've given myself quarterly goals of what success looks like. Mm -hmm. um, because at the end, it's, you know, it's really easy at the end of a quarter, at the end of a year to say, I have no revenue, I've failed. Um, but what does success look like? Uh, when I first started Activote, success at the end of the first quarter was to have a really broken app, but that at least I could play with on my phone. Um, and you know, it wasn't even to put it in the app stores yet. Right. We had, but we set metrics for what success looks like and sure. Um, you know, some of my companies that are big. It was, you know, let's make sure we make 50 million this quarter. Right. Mm. Again, like what does success look like? But even for those companies that were really big at some point, you know, revenue was kind of humming along and, you know, I had a phase where we had some morale problems. Okay. Well, success for this quarter isn't revenue focused. Of course, I still paid attention to revenue, but it was really morale focused and culture focused and everything there. And so I think one of the favors we can do, our, do for ourselves is to be really intentional about what success looks like for you for a quarter. Um, you know, you can always have a to-do list for a week um, and that will be very transactional. Um, you can have a long-term vision and a strategy for the next three years um, and that's going to be very aspirational. But if you want to kind of get in that sweet spot of how you can keep yourself going, keep yourself focused and make sure you're driving towards revenue eventually, it's to set those quarterly, what does success look like? And it doesn't always have to be the same thing. Um, it should be A, something you believe is possible to achieve uh, and then B, something that you know, is going is to eventually get you to that long-term strategy. Um, they, have a, they have a saying about setting goals and setting targets is that it should be something that you think you have a 70% chance of achieving. And why 70%? If you set a target that's basically, you know, super easy, then it's not going to motivate you to, you know, go better, stronger, faster, harder. You set something <laughs> way too hard. Uh, and I'm sure we've all at some point had a manager or a boss set a target that you just think, yeah, that's never going to happen. It has the, the opposite effect. You go even slower. Um, mm. So figure out what success looks like. Um, write it down uh, and make sure you at the beginning of every quarter, I do it quarterly. You don't have to do it quarterly. Um, but whenever you decide to do it, write it down, set a date from when you're actually going to look at it and say, did I succeed? Did I not? And how does this, and then set another goal for the next period. You know, I've been really bad at this because I try to do these quarterly goals. I'll read a book about OKRs. I'm like, oh, I got to do this. And then, and then, and then it just like falters away, but I do love the quarterly cadence. 
do you, I mean, how do you combat that? Because especially as somebody who's a leader in his or her company, I'm like, how do I stick to this? You know, like maybe I'm doing it wrong. Maybe the goals that I'm setting are incorrect. And I keep not sticking to this quarterly and checking in with my team on that front. So I think one of the pitfalls on, on OKRs is when you make a goal that isn't aligned with what you're likely to be doing during that period. So, you know, depending on where your business is, you know, if you're in the first, you know, few months of development, don't set revenue goals. Um, if you know that the next period, you know, for me, it's the midterm elections, right? So the only thing I am thinking about right now um, are the elections in May and June. That's the only thing that I'm thinking about. So the only thing this, this quarter has for goals is around the primary elections. Uh, are there other things I should, would, and could be doing? Absolutely. But I know that the midterms only come once every two years, and this is what the world is going to be doing, the world, sorry, the U.S. is going to be doing for the next few months. And so I think that pitfall, Steve, they feel hard when they are disjointed from the work that you're doing. Mm. And so I think for you, um, you know, I, I don't know exactly what's on what's on your list right now. Happy to have mm -hmm. a chat about it at some point. But picking goals that are that are aligned with, you know, basically what's on the roadmap um, helps make it feel like an asset, not a distraction. I love it. I love it. With the midterms, what do you, when you said midterms, like talk to me a little bit more about that. Is it more like, how do we get more users in these states that are doing all the midterms? Like it's, is there a number that is associated when you said midterms too? Yeah. So for us, right. So for, for folks that don't know the midterm elections, um, is when the U S house of representatives is elected, um, Midterms, it basically means the middle of a president's term. Um, we right. elected a president in 2020. We'll do it again in 2024. So midterm, it's like a midterm exam right in the middle. Um, so for us, for our metrics, we have two big metrics we're working towards. One is getting candidates to participate in our survey. So just like Steve mentioned, he likes seeing, hey, who believes what I believe? Um, and then maybe I'll cast my ballot based on you know belief system and values versus party. Um, so one of our big metrics is how many candidates can we get to do our survey? And then the other is, how many users we can get, um, but not even just users. How can, can we get those users to the polls? Because um, using our app is one great thing, and you know, and I want everybody to do it. But I actually want them to, to change that digital, you know, interaction into action by voting in the polls. And so those, you know, so for us, we know exactly that those are the things we're thinking about this quarter. And everything we do, uh, everything, eighty percent of what we do, I should say, always follow the eighty twenty rule, is linked to that. Is getting people to the polls. Okay. Great. Thank you for that example. I want to talk to Adrian. There's a couple of people that I know pretty well that are in the comments that I'm kind of picking on them and I'm kind of thinking about you. I'm much better, Sarah, talking about other people's businesses and really looking at mine. I'm like, am I this detailed when I'm looking at the numbers of my business? No, I'm probably more detailed when I look at the numbers of my clients. But Adrian, my he says, my fantasy meditation app, which I love, Adrian, is iOS only. What's a good revenue figure to feel safe to start on an Android version? So he's subscription based, Sarah, just so you know, it's a meditation app. He's out in Ireland. So it's a Celtic type of feel, like almost like Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings type of feel to it. And so there's some gamifications. But to answer his, what's a good revenue figure to feel like he can start building an Android version? You have any thoughts on this? So I think it, it, it depends a little bit on, you know, your current financial situation, the situation of the company. So how much cash you have um, to spare how much investment it's going to take. Uh, so estimating out, um, you know, is it a native Android app? Are you going to use one of these, you know, 
a React or a Flutter, um, you know, to do, you know, do that transition from native to, to one of those to get two in one. And so I think the revenue number depends on the investment to go into it. Um, obviously, there's a market, uh, you know, for Android. And so the great news about having your iOS app is you can look how much did we spend to make this whole thing? Uh, how much revenue did we get? When did we get that revenue? And the good news is some of the stuff that you would have you know, experimented with on iOS, you've already decided on design, you've already decided on, um, you know, messaging and marketing and all of these types of things. Obviously, those costs won't go there. So so what I would do is I would I would first look back and kind of assess the playing field on iOS, look at the costs for Android, um, you know, be thoughtful about that, and then look at my budget, look at my cash flow. Um, and the moment I have it, you know, get started. Yeah. And I, I would say it this way too, Adrian, like a couple of different things. I have a couple of, I have a, a UK and an Ireland based type of client and we do really well in Ireland. And I don't know why they know, I don't know if they just know, but we run some ASA campaigns and while the scale isn't there in terms of volume versus the U S the cost per acquisition is really, really low. And you know, this consensus I got was like, Hey, they love people, you know, Irish people love when, when things are built in Ireland. So I would think about how you can leverage that. I would also say that there's been plenty of friends that I have who are iOS only and making a lot of money. So if, because your revenue model is purely based more on a subscription, there are a lot of things that we can do on a subscription to really grow those revenues before you even think about iOS. And a friend of mine, Rich Wagstaff was on a couple of months or weeks ago, and he talked about just being iOS only. He tried being going on Android and just stopped. And then I reached out to Rich and I was like, dude, I think I can help you with your revenues. And we've seen some really good benefits from AB testing his pricing pages. And then <laughs> he's like, Steve, can we talk? I think he's okay with sharing this, but his, his revenue growth has grown since, you know, just a little bit interactions with me and kind of helping him with his pricing page. So I think there's a lot that you can do just on Apple search ads and really playing around with the pricing page before you even think about Android at all. So that's what I would say. Okay. Rudy has an answer too. It's like, unless you have an advertisement based model on Android, it's but worthy users will not pay. So yeah, Rudy says the same thing. Unless you're ad based, like there's no real point, especially for your subscription base, just stay on iOS. There's a lot you can do on iOS. And I, I like your, you know, it feels like more blue ocean. It's a different take on meditation, especially when you called Celtic whispers. I think you'll do really well in Ireland and the UK. So think about that a little bit. I reach out to me. Let's do some things. I'm getting motivated here. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Sarah, I do want to, is there anything else that I might've missed on the scaling front? Cause I want to save a couple of different topics for part two of our discussion. Yeah. I, I got one or two more things, but we can save okay. those for the second part if you'd like. No, hit me. Yeah. Let's, let's do it. Part one, all about scaling part two. I want to talk about what you've learned from selling your business and how that informs previous businesses, how that informs ActiveVote and other bit projects that you do, do. But yeah, right. hit me with the uh, left of scaling. Then my last piece of advice on scaling is an organizational structure that works with three people doesn't work with 10 people. And a 10 people structure doesn't work with 50 people. Um, mm. you know, and so one of the hardest things with scale is being flexible with your organization. Um, when, when three people sit in a room, you can just say things. You don't need process. You don't need anything. And you shouldn't have those things because it'll slow you down. Um, you know, when you're 10, you need a little bit of it. You know, 25. One of the hardest lessons I have had to learn, and I learned it by screwing it up a few times, is 
your organizational structure can't be set in stone. It needs to grow with you and it needs to change as your organization changes because those different sizes have massively different problems and need a different structure to make it fit. Um, don't do that too fast because if, you, if you're 10 people and you put in a structure meant for 100, you're going to needlessly slow yourselves down. Uh, but if you're 25 and you're still trying to run on three, it's going to be total chaos and you're not going to be as efficient as you need to be. So I think that's one thing on scale I definitely wanted to throw out there uh, for folks is don't be hesitant to change your structure um, as often as it's needed. I love it. When you go from, let's say three, you know, we're a team of five right now, let's say we get to 10, is it just having less people as a leader interacting with you? Like how does, what really changes when you go from like, let's say three to 10 and then 10 to 25? So a couple things, right? So some is communication style um, and, and communication modes of communication, right? When you're just three, it can sometimes be super easy to just kind of keep in your head the open questions you have for these two people. Um, and so you, you, you know, throw it on Slack, um, you know, send a text, you know, and it kind of works, right? You don't have documentation. Everybody knows everything because you're mm. such a small team. Um, the moment you have 10, people start to specialize, right? Somebody does only X or only Y. Um, and you might now have questions for seven or eight different people um, during any given week. And managing that in your head starts being a little bit more difficult. Um, and making sure that those things get followed through on starts to be a little bit more difficult. You know, 25, it's even crazier, right? And then at 25, um, you shouldn't have 24 people reporting to you. Uh, the sweet spot of direct reports is, you know, eight to 12. Um, and so now all of a sudden you need another layer. And so then you have somebody who's a manager managing managers, which is a very different skill than a manager, you know, managing direct reports. And so it's just that each of those inflection points, it's important to reassess that structure. Biggest thing is around communication, documentation, which is so unsexy. I know that. Um, but it gets harder and it will slow your business down and you'll lose money if you're not doing it. And then the management structures are incredibly important for morale because, you know, people are what make this whole thing work. Uh, and if you don't have a structure that is people focused, you're going to lose your people. I love it. I love doing this. Oh my God. I'm going to take, you know what's there? Like I'm bad at taking notes, but I remember things that are memorable. My wife says I have a bad memory, but I'm like, I can remember things that are really hit home. And that really hit home because I've been, good at documentation, but not good. Like there's, they're everywhere, these videos on how to do stuff, but they're not in like one central location. And then the goal for this Q2 would be that documentation. Cause I've been thinking about, I'm like, all right, here's a three month game plan that we can put, insert any client. And here's like, you know, pick out like a meal, a buffet, like, Hey, depending on the client, we're going to do this, this, and this, and this, and this. And I need to put that together, but it's all in my head. And then obviously I need to document it for my team. That's where I'm at, but I loved it. Hey, if you're promoting from within, that's an amazing opportunity for one of the people who works for you to give them a chance to put it together and then you edit it. It's always easier to edit than create. So you've just given someone an opportunity, taken some work off your plate and achieved a goal. I love it. I love it, Sarah. All right, Sarah. Tired of overpaying for app store optimization? Get unlimited ASO and app marketing support to increase your keyword rankings, downloads, and more importantly, your revenue. Learn more at asomasters.com. Thanks for listening to the App Masters podcast. For show notes and amazing app marketing content, check out appmasters.co.